पंद्रह सेकंड में मैं क्या कर सकता हूँ बैंक ऑफ बड़ोडा के एम कनेक्ट प्लस ऐप से बिजली का बिल भर सकता हूँ बैंक ऑफ बड़ोडा भारत का अंतर्राष्ट्रीय बैंक वेलकम टू जयपुर बाइट्स द जे एल एफ पॉडकास्ट आई एम योर होस्ट लक्ष दाता आई एम हियर एट दी जयपुर लिटरेचर फेस्टिवल ट्वेंटी ट्वेंटी पैलेस एंड वॉट यूर अबाउट टू हियर इन दिस एपिसोड इज अ रिकॉर्डिंग ऑफ अ लाइव सेशन दैट जस्ट है Here it is. Um, let me start with David um, and. David has David Wallace Wells as you know has written our uninhabitable earth which is the subject of our conference today i mean the, the title of this session and um he's done something that needed to be done and i think only one other person has even tried to do it is Naomi Klein really which is to say look there are all kinds of uncertainties about the predictions on climate change but let's not look at the uncertainties let let's look at what's the, the 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 track has been so far and what the track is likely to be and drop all the whys and wherefores and tell us where the world is going and it's a frightening picture he did this 18 months ago in um an article in new york magazine which went viral 17 scientists not all of them climate scientists by the way uh said uh this is not realistic he's not done his he's not done his research and i can tell you something um in just these last 18 months a great deal of that 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 in, in a great deal of that uh, sort of in skepticism has gone because 3 months after he did that the ipcc's special report on 1.5 degrees centigrade came out and that confirmed pretty much most of what david said is likely to happen in the future we got to ask him to start with uh, telling us in, in in substance what he has what he fears uh, we have navroz dubash who is the 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 head of the environment and its climate change section of the center for policy research in delhi um, he has just uh, produced his second book it's an edited edited book called india India in a warming world it's available in hardcover but it's also an open access book i want you to know any of you can go on the net and look at the 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 uh, the, the, the essays and whatever you find is of interest to you go ahead and please read it um we we have marcus how do you pronounce mensch marcus mensch marcus has lived 12 years in india but he he now lives in boulder uh, and he is and and ex- uh, basically he he will talk he's an expert on, on all the issues of adaptation how do we deal how do we deal with the warming world in the in the in the years that come even if we find ways of arresting the rise in and and, and reversing the rise, rise in co2 concentrations and then I'm I'm your moderator. I've done some work in this area and I have also a book out somewhere it's in, out there if you want to have a look at it. I'll pop in from time to time and say a few things but you know as they strike me. 
So, David, may I ask you to kick off our session? Yeah, thank, for, thank you for the introduction. Um, thank you all for sharing the stage with me. It's great to be here with each of you, and thank you all for, for coming um, to talk about this. Um, many people, when they um, try to imagine the threat of climate change, find themselves imagining the future, some distant threats. Um, but I think it's often useful to think about the present tense because, or at least to start by thinking about the present tense, because we are all, all already living in quite unprecedented times. The planet is about 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than it was before the Industrial Revolution today, which doesn't sound like very much, but it puts us entirely outside the window of temperatures that enclose all of human history, which means that the planet has never been as warm as it is today when there were humans around to walk on it. And that means that everything that we've ever known as a species, the development of agriculture, the development of the human animal, the development of civilization, everything we know about ourselves as political creatures and cultural creatures and emotional creatures, all of that is the result of climate conditions which we have already entirely and permanently left behind. It's like we've landed on a new planet with a new climate, and we now have to figure out what of the civilization or civilizations that we've brought with us to that new planet can survive those new conditions, what will have to be renovated and reformed, and what will have to be discarded. And that's just at 1.1 degrees, which is where we are today. Scientists say, if we globally immediately stopped emitting carbon today, didn't produce a single ounce more, we're producing about 37 billion tons of it every year, but if we didn't produce a single ounce more, we'd probably be due for about a half a degree more of warming just from what's in the atmosphere today, which would put us about 1.5, 1.6 degrees, maybe even 1.7. Um, but of course, given all the political, economic, and cultural obstacles to real action, I think it's impractical to expect that we could find ourselves south of two degrees. And two degrees Celsius is a level of warming that scientists call catastrophic. It's a level of warming that many island nations call genocide. And they have good reason to. The UN says that at two degrees of warming, damages from storms and sea level rise could grow a hundredfold. That cities um, in South Asia, in India, the Middle East, um, could become so hot during summer that you wouldn't be able to walk around outside during heat waves without risking heat stroke or possibly death. These are cities that today hold 10 or 12 or 15 million people in them, and um, it could be the case that just in the second half of the century, every year in each of them, tens of thousands of people would be dying just from the effects of direct heat. Um, scientists expect, again, just at two degrees of warming, perhaps 150 million additional people would die from the effects of air pollution. And we'd probably be locking in just north of two degrees, maybe 2.1 or a little um, warmer than that, the permanent loss of the planet's ice sheets, which would take centuries to unfold, but over time would produce probably 80 meters of sea level rise, which is enough to drown two-thirds of the world's major cities and maybe 80% of them. And that's two degrees, which is practically speaking, I think, a best-case scenario. Things could get somewhat considerably worse from there, depending on the choices we make today. But just walking through those impacts gives you a sense that this is not a threat that we can really 
think of as distant in time or place. It is truly all-encompassing. It affects economic production, it affects cognition, it affects mental health, public health. Nearly every aspect of modern life will be transformed by this force, which is to say almost all of them will be damaged by it. And while those damages are expected to arrive unequally, um, with the nations in the developing world being hit harder, despite the fact that they've done considerably less to bring us to this point, and the nations of the wealthy West being hit relatively less hard. Nevertheless, you will not be able to escape this force or live in a way that is not defined by it, I think, no matter where you live on the planet. But of course, some places are being hit, going to be hit harder than others, and unfortunately, India is expected to be the absolute hardest hit. And I think Navarroz is going to talk a little bit more about that in detail, but it's just as a conceptual matter, a framing matter, I think really helpful to keep in mind. India is expected to withstand as much as a quarter of all global climate damages in the, next, in the rest of this century, considerably more than Bangladesh, which is threatened to be largely, if not entirely, underwater over the rest of the century, depending on how sea level rise goes, and much more than Australia, which, as we've seen over the last few months, is already staring down some incredibly dramatic climate impacts with wildfires, not just a wildfire season lasting three months, they're literally, they've literally had fires burning now for three months at a time, and those fires are going to continue to burn probably for another two months, burning 20 million um, acres, 20 times or more what California has dealt with in its worst wildfire seasons, killing more than a billion animals and forcing the evacuation of tens of thousands of people um, in scenes reminiscent of um, warfare and total social disarray. Now, how far the rest of the world gets into futures that seem to be predicted by the experience of Australia, I think is very much um, worth keeping in mind. It's, very, it's about what we, the choices we make today. Because climate change is not, um, it's not distant in time in the same way that it's not distant in place. We often think that this is a problem that has been left to us by our ancestors, that it's a story of centuries, and it's fallen to us to clean up the mess left by our grandparents so that our grandchildren um, will be living relatively well off. But in fact, half of all of the emissions that have ever been produced in the entire history of humanity from the burning of fossil fuels have come in just the last 30 years. And that's since Al Gore published his first book on warming, it's since the UN established the IPCC climate change body, We've done more damage since then than in all of the centuries, indeed all of the millennia of human history that came before. And that means that we've also done more damage knowingly than we ever managed in ignorance, which is um, quite distressing considering at the moment we're placing a lot of hope on the fact that the world is finally waking up to this threat. Um, the recent past suggests that awareness, consciousness of the problem is far from sufficient motivation to produce outcomes and response of the kind that we would really need to avoid some truly terrifying outcomes. Now, I'm 37 years old, which means that my life contains this entire story. When I was born, the planet's climate seemed stable. Scientists worried about the medium-term and the long-term threats from climate change, but at the moment, things seemed okay. And now, just a few decades later, we're on the brink of catastrophe because of what has happened in those last 30 years. This is not a problem 
that our ancestors left for us. It is the work of a single generation, which is to say the work of the generation of everyone in this room today. And because most of us are going to be alive for a few decades more at least, we're probably going to be able to see the next act of this story too. Scientists say if we've done the bulk of this damage in the last 30 years, we now have about that much time to take action to avoid truly catastrophic outcomes. And the next few decades will be absolutely critical, which means that all of us are alive today at an absolutely consequential hinge point, not just for climate history, but for human and planetary history. We're living through what's called a, a mass extinction right now. It's the sixth mass extinction in human history. None of the other, five of the other, four of the other five were produced by um, greenhouse gas effects like the ones that we're living through today. And we're today adding carbon to the atmosphere at a rate that's at least 10 times faster than the fastest of those extinctions. The worst of which killed at least 90 and perhaps 97% of all life on Earth. Now, I think humans are an adaptable, resilient species, which is another thing that we'll be talking about later in this panel. I think we'll, we will find ways to live amidst this, these transformations and this suffering, but adapting to what level of human pain and climate cruelty is very much an open question. And I think if we find ourselves living in a world defined by unprecedented human suffering, even the incredible resiliency and ad adaptiveness of the human species won't be sufficient to allow us to um, build li lives for ourselves that look or would look to us today prosperous and livable and just. If we want to secure those promises and that future for ourselves, we must take dramatic, dramatic action today both on the decarbonization side to make sure that the impacts that we're living through and adapting to are smaller and also very aggressively in how we try to build new infrastructures and social structures that will allow us to live in flourishing ways everywhere on the planet, not just in the wealthy corners of the world, in the face of some of these quite dramatic transformations, which, just to close, I should say, not just a matter of extreme weather you know, not just a matter of sea level rise. Um, I think one of the most important things for the public to start to understand um, in a way that hasn't been all that well understood anywhere in the world is that these transformations are dramatic enough that they will shake the foundations of every aspect of modern life. It's not just about escaping the shoreline. It's not just a ma matter of protecting yourself from drought. It's a matter of the way that our politics and our geopolitics, our culture, our relationship to economics, capitalism, our sense of our place in nature, and our sense of the shape of history, how all of these things will be transformed in the decades ahead, inevitably, no matter what we do. But we have an opportunity to make sure that they are changed in ways that give us um, a future that is, again, relatively livable, relatively prosperous, relatively just, and ultimately, that is about what we do today and in the next couple of decades, which means the responsibility is shared by all of us alive today, indeed shared by all of us on this panel and in this room. Um, we must take action soon on all fronts to give ourselves a chance of the kind of future that we would like to leave to not just our children and our grandchildren, but even ourselves in old age. So with that, I think I'll, I think that's a good big picture start of, yeah. Thank you, David. Uh, I strongly urge you to read every page of the book. I, I should tell you something. Um, 
whatever the scientists may have said, 40% of the wording in this wordage in this book is references and footnotes. It is one of the most carefully researched books on this issue that I have come across. So please go ahead and do it. I now want to pass this on to Navroz. Navroz, we've had some um, rather dramatic events which have brought home that we are not immune from climate change in the last few years. And finally, the Indian Meteorolo Meteorological uh, Office d agreed and formally said that we are being affected by climate change. Would you like to tell us some more about it? Oh, by the way, this is India in a warming world, open access, but also in a beautifully produced um, hardcover copy, and hopefully in the future in paperback. But don't wait for the paperback. <laughs> no, indeed. Please go ahead and just download the book. Uh, the intent is to, is to stimulate engagement. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Prem, and thank you, David, for that, that uh, really thoughtful uh, uh, sort of tour of your, of your book, which I really enjoyed reading a great deal. Um, I think David is absolutely right. The, what we are seeing already, climate change is already here. Many of us who've worked on this for a while, Marcus and I go back actually to grad school where we used to talk about these things, so we've been at this for a, for a fair bit. But I think very few of us have predicted the pace and uh, the scale of the changes that we are already seeing. Now, one of the artifacts of climate change science is that a lot of the work that is done tends to be done in areas where the research funding is, where the resources are, where the academic capabilities are. And so ironically, there's less research on climate change impacts in India uh, which is very vulnerable than many other parts of the world. But there is enough that we can see uh, what is going on. So let me just give you a, embellish what David said with a few sort of examples. Let's take, <clears throat> we had, as David said, we're already at one degrees. We're headed towards three degrees if we don't do anything differently. Already at, with one degree, it's expected that irrigation needs in a country like India will go up 10%. We're already a water-scarce society. So these are ripple effects. If we have 10% more demand in irrigation, it's going to ripple through our economy. Uh, demands for water in urban areas are also going to go up. Um, uh, so, so that is an example of the kinds of things that we have to deal with. Uh, we are already dealing with a situation where we have a jobs crisis in India. With climate change, labor productivity is expected to go down. All the science suggests that the productivity of our labor will decline. Uh, one way of dealing with that is air conditioning the place, which of course only exacerbates the problem. Uh, let's take another example of our cities. There was recently a study, finally a climate change study that made it to the front page of, of our newspapers, which showed that most of South Bombay will be underwater in 2050 if sea level rise proceeds as anticipated. The bottom line is that while India has long argued that development is our primary priority, we no longer have the luxury of thinking about development in a world that is innocent of climate change. We have to think about development in the context of a warming world, and hence the title of the book. So this is a much more complicated challenge. We're not doing a great job dealing with our development under the existing conditions. We're going to be dealing with development under an even more complicated set of conditions where we'll see warming, we'll see frequent disruptions, we'll see many more uh, violent weather events, we'll see uh, a, a decline of species, we are already seeing fisheries impacted, for example, uh, by climate change. So this is the context that we are going to uh, step into. I just want to take a minute, though, to say, okay, we've all, I'm, I'm, I, certainly on this panel, I suspect many of the people in this room agree that we need to do something about this. The catch-22, the dilemma I face, is that 
agreeing that we need to do something doesn't necessarily tell us how we act. And one of the tensions I feel when I read books like David's is that, yes, pressing the alarm bell is really important. It has led to the sorts of mobilizations we've seen in Europe around Extinction Rebellion. It has led to some important legislative changes in countries like the UK. At the same time, that sort of story of alarm also induces paralysis both at the level of citizens and at the level of policymakers. It seems like a giant problem to address. And you get, you fall back into a long tradition in India and other countries of saying, well, look, we didn't cause much of this problem, somebody else did. So we need to really just safeguard ourselves, but rely on somebody else to solve the problem, which tends to break down in north-south lines. And so I've seen a little bit of that happen in the last few years, even as the alarm and the awareness grows, so has the defensive pushback that says, okay, this is not really a problem of our making. It's deeply unfair that we should have to deal with it. What's the way past this? I think we actually need to have multiple narratives in the climate debate. One is the narrative David laid out, which is that this is climate change is here and now. It's a giant problem. It's moving towards the scale of an existential problem for humanity. And if we don't do something about it, we will be in a situation where uh, uh, development aspirations will be much harder to achieve. But the reality of it is we need, we need another story. I don't think that story, from my experience engaging with policy and the public in India, I don't think that story by itself will tell us how to act. And we need another story that says, how do we manage to meet our development needs while also transitioning to a low-carbon future? It's a slightly more hopeful story of opportunity. India hasn't built most of its infrastructure. India hasn't actually completed building most of its cities. We have no idea how we're going to provide jobs to the millions of people who are now moving from rural areas to urban areas. We have a chance to rethink all those things through a low-carbon lens. And if we do that well, it will also give us competitive opportunities in the future because the world is moving to a low-carbon economy. So we need to find a way for our policymakers, for our business, to also tell a story that breaks this giant climate problem into a few more tractable problems. What kind of cities do we want to build? Right now, we're building cities around roads and the private car. That is simply untenable. We need to have a public transport-based system. Uh, what sorts of infrastructure do we want to build that is resilient to coastal surges? Do we want to make sure that we stay away from coastal areas for key infrastructure? Uh, these are challenges we can take on. Air pollution. India has the worst air pollution in the world by some distance. The air pollution problem is not the same as the climate problem, but there are a lot of overlaps. There are a lot of things that will both solve air pollution and climate change. That is a more tractable problem. So I think we need to have sort of in our minds the sense of urgency that David talked about, but we have to be really cautious that it doesn't result in a diplomatic and a kind of north-south global blame game backlash, and instead we break it down into more discrete problems that we have a chance of solving, that we have some control over addressing, air pollution, urban transport, and so on. So, Thank you. Um, yes, now, may I, just a, a couple of points about how India is being affected. In the last f four years, five years now, we've had three deluges, floods in, 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 in Tamil Nadu, and two terrifying deluges 
in, in, in Kerala, which have killed thousands of people, destroyed tens of thousands of homes, and flooded entire cities. We never had this before, not in a hundred years, not in living memory. And it's not accidental. It's happening because of two things. One, there's a 50-year trend, and there's a study which shows that the monsoon winds are weakening for various reasons. Um, one of the reasons is that as the seas grow warmer, the amount of evaporation from the sea is, is increasing. Our southwest monsoons, therefore, are heavier with, with water, and therefore they move more slowly. One result is that when they hit the mountains of the, of, of, of the Kerala coast, and they rise into cooler air, there's more water to, to drop, and that's where the floods are coming from. And it's coming, it's dramatic, because it's happening so suddenly and now so frequently. It's like as if we've crossed a tipping point. If you look on the other side, exactly the same thing is happening. You've got the northeast monsoons, which come fr from China, from Asia, but across the Bay of Bengal, picking up water. And the Bay of Bengal, I think, is about two degrees warmer than it was, uh, say, two decades ago. So there's much more evaporation being picked up and being, again, dropped much sooner because the clouds are heavier. One result is that if more of the, of, the, of the water has been dropped earlier, there's less when you go inland. So India has just emerged last, last July from a 10-month drought in the whole of South India, which absolutely devastated people. There were children carrying buckets, take, catching trains on, on the side, practically stopping them, getting, going to the nearest station, filling up at the tap and catching another station, coming back to the village to meet the water, drinking water needs of their families every single day for months. That's how bad things have become. And this is not accidental. The entire process is understood, and it, the only way you can, you, can, you can stop this is in the long run, not in the short run. I'm going to talk, I think we have Marcus Mensch, who's done so much work on adaptation on, on, on water, on groundwater, and all kinds of things. He's written, by the way, six articles in the Economic and Political Weekly over the last 16 years, 18 years, on these issues, which you can look up on the net. They're open access to. Marcus, over to you. Okay, well, now, now I have the, 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 the joy of talking on, on uh, you know, the, uh, the adaptation side. And the thing that I always think with the air pollution example is, you know, it's, it's lucky that uh, people live in Delhi because they can walk on air. You know, and um, the point on that, though, is that I don't think societies move where they see the light or politicians or leaders, they move where they feel the heat. And so something that cuts across boundaries, that cuts across political groups, etc., is imperative. And that's what we're seeing, beginning to see in Australia, in other areas. Um, you know, and I see that as a positive step, where people start feeling it, and that is where you begin to get the real pressure and a, the potential for a different narrative to arise. I'm working right now on things that I call the butterfly wing. Where do you enter in complex systems to catalyze change? And when I look at the climate problems, I tend to think in terms of solution spaces and problem spaces. Solution spaces are those areas where we have all sorts of things, we know what to do, it's just the question of getting the social mobilization to do them. And I think in the water arena, we have tons of things like that. We have tons of things like that in urban design. We have tons of things like that in transport. We have an amazing amount of that in emerging technologies around energy. And there's real opportunities there for new livelihoods. When I look in my own country, you know, I'm, 
I'm tending to wear black these days, and I'm going to wear black most of the time, at least until we have serious movement at our political level on climate. So that's, you know, it's not a random, a random piece. Um, but I look in North Texas, and you can't touch the windmills. That's a red, politically red state. But the reason you can't touch the windmills and they've grown is because you put, you're a small rancher, you put 10 windmills on your farm, your ranch, that's $50,000 in royalties a year, and it's jobs. So all of a sudden, it's flipped the economic equation. So there's a real push, despite Texas being very conservative and the center of the petrochemical industry, there's real movement. It keeps the Dairy Queens open, is what people say. It's what keeps the small towns alive. So I do think there are real solution spaces. And this is where the idea of the butterfly wing, you know, how do people identify those openings? Where can you push? But I also think that your story is, is incredibly true. The problem spaces. And you know, when I look at North India, we did work with NCAR a couple of years ago that looked at heat specifically and looked at the less sexy part of heat, the minimum night temperature. And that's what really scares me, actually, because the minimum ambient heat index across the Gangetic Basin, where about 500,000 people live, 500 million, my, my brain is, is just off by an order of magnitude. Um, yeah, but that is increasing, and it's likely that you will have a minimum night temperature that doesn't go below a heat index about 36, 37, quite soon, for about three months a year, and particularly during the monsoon. It's when it's high humidity, and providing active cooling, how do you do that across that? tremendously energy intensive, and that's forgetting about crops, that's forgetting about livestock, etc. So I think that point illustrates the pro one of the problems is our biggest, we have a lot of solutions, but we also have areas where we need tremendous innovation, where we need real thinking, we need to think about how people move, where they live, etc. And it's going to be in places where we don't expect it. You know, the rising sea levels, I go to Bangkok and I think about that, I describe it as an upwardly mobile city, and that's because everybody's moving to the second floor. They're moving all their equipment up. And it actually makes a significant difference. But that question of how do we avoid the political directional chaos that would be there if you had displacement of population across the Gangetic Basin, the identity chaos, and I think that applies as well in the West. Yes, India may well have some of the biggest impacts, but I think we'll be very surprised at home as well. So to me, the question is really not changing just the development trajectory, um, but the question of how do we achieve a much deeper change, which is really about how we live, how our footprint is, what we aspire to, you know, the climate impacts of every decision we make are actually not insignificant. And that's why, coming back to Navroz's point on narratives, that's why I'm here at the Literature Festival, because I actually find inspiration heavily in the literature, how do cities survive, what have people done in the past, the stories that are told. And that, to me, is where we can connect the areas that we know there are solutions with the areas where we don't have answers and come up with better, better ways of addressing them. Move people and move them at an emotive and identity level as well as a technical level. 
Deborah Roberts, who's a good friend and is head of IPCC Working Group 2 co-author, and I used to joke that a lot of the development dialogue around climate was completely disingenuous. It was like putting rubber stoppers on the deck chairs of the Titanic so you didn't scratch the deck going down. Um, and so it's shifting that from that minimum stuff to a really much deeper rethinking. And I would just say, especially thinking about the um, the question of development um, and narrative, that thankfully there has been a real sea change in the way that um, development economics views this this question. A decade ago, it really did seem that a country like India did have to choose between developing rapidly or developing responsibly. And most economists would now tell you quite candidly that they see that dilemma as having disappeared, um, or at least um, it's less of a a naked trade-off than it used to seem, and that in many cases, the opportunities for faster growth lie on more responsible paths. Um, now, we need to engineer our politics in a culture that um, focuses on those opportunities and delivers um, those kinds of transitions, but it's not just, we're not, you know, selling snake oil to say we should be um, living on renewable power. In fact, it is a, a, a boom opportunity all across the developing world and perhaps um, nowhere as, as um, strikingly as, as here in India. Is this working? Can you hear me? Yeah, we now must, will move to, from what should be done and what needs to be done uh, to what is actually being done and what can be done. And I want to first of all start with, uh, by joining with Navroz in saying that simply saying that we are headed for doom unfortunately has been having the opposite reaction of saying if that is so, then I don't want to think about it. Uh, there have been a number of studies in the U.S. There was one in particular uh, in five centers in the U.S. with 200 respondents in each and given three ways of being... They were approached about the climate change problem in three different ways. One was the gloom and doom scenario. One was, well, I mean, it's pretty bad, but, you know, we might, can you think of some ways it could be fixed? And the third was, well, there are lots of solutions. Uh, if we put these in, then we will be able to, uh, to deal with it. And the third... The third approach found the maximum, the highest proportion of people accepting that climate change is a problem. And this, the more, more studies like this are being done now, so we will see this. I think we need to move on now from this to saying what can be done. And I want to, um, if you excuse me, um, take the, some of the time that John Lanchester would have had, who tragically has developed a very bad uh, stomach trouble. To, and you know, he's a novelist, he's written five great novels, and two of them particularly are hilariously funny, and they're very good. And they are related to the world we are in today, particularly the world of climate change, and they are available in the bookstore. The most, the rec most recent one is The Wall. I urge you to go and read it. I mean, it's good to read about climate change also from the side of view, perspectives of novelists, because they often see what we do not see. Having said that, let me just add a few words about how, how to approach this, what is actually happening. The, we, scientists and people are not sitting still. First and foremost, two forms of renewable energy have become far cheaper than electricity, which is wind and solar photovoltaic. You, all of you know that, and uh, the, the development in this is very, very far, rapid. The question that is now there is, Particularly with wind power, it's now being established that there is enough wind power in the world, if you just take it in gross terms, uh, to meet all our needs for quite some time in the future. But the problem is, 
it comes at different times and in different places and, you, and, and is, is also not totally predictable. Uh, so the, that solar photovoltaic, of course, is only during the daytime and only when there are no clouds. So the big issue today is not whether we have alternatives to, to fossil fuels for energy, for electrical energy, but how you marry them. And I, I can assure you there are several solutions, and the ones that are being worked on now are cost-free, and they will be in, in place in a few years. And please watch, keep, keep a close eye on that. That's one part of it. The other, other side of it, of course, is that we have all the issues that Navroz raised, which is in the developing countries, we're mainly still agricultural. We are still in the middle stages of, develop, of de developing, uh, you know, into urban societies. Do we really need to go the whole way? It's quite clear now that we don't need to, because agriculture can be the base of the transport fuels and a great part of the, the, uh, the industrial raw material base that we need, which is today being met from fossil fuels. I'm going to stop talking about that there because I'd like them to talk, but now we have 25 minutes in which I think we've got a good 10 minutes to discuss your ideas and solutions and so on, and 15 minutes, please, for all of you. Uh, may I just pass it on? Yeah. Who would like to start maybe, on this? Maybe I can Navroz, pick maybe, up. Would you? Thank you. Thank you. Um, thanks so much, uh, Prem. So I, I, I think the, uh, well, let me, let me uh, step back for a second. Um, I've been part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for a, for a while, and the narrative in that uh, in that uh, body, which is really meant to be kind of the scientific statement of consensus among, among scholars and scientists working on this, uh, focuses on the climate science, but there's a group that looks at solutions. And most of what they talk about is that the potential exists for a world that delivers development, progress, uh, sufficient energy, energy needs in a way that is also low carbon. The key word there is potential. So the technical potential exists. We can, in other words, there's a point somewhere out there that is better than where we are now. The real difficulty is in getting from that, from where we are now to that point. And the challenge really is that we are locked into the current ways of doing things by a set of political interests, by our institutional structures, and by our behavioral patterns. Let's start with the simplest, right, which is behavioral patterns. We're locked into certain patterns of food consumption. Uh, I was on a panel uh, on something called the Anthropocene, the fact that humanity is now shaping the world at geological scales, and one of my colleagues was telling me that at the moment, there are 21 billion chickens alive uh, on, on the planet, and we go through some 60 billion chickens. There are more chickens than all other mammals put together on the planet. It's, a, it's kind of an astonishing number. So we are locked, and that is a very energy-intensive agricultural system. We're locked into that, and at root, it's the sum total of all of our behaviors. So we have to shift our behaviors. That takes time. Shifting politics takes time, right? So Mr. Trump, uh, uh, and, and you know, I, I might have to share your, your dress style, uh, uh, Marcus, in the, in the near future. Um, uh, Mr. Trump says he's going to sh save Appalachian coal miners, right? There are strong interests around the coal industry. There are strong interests around the oil industry. It takes a while to shake them loose, despite the fact that the economics is so much stronger. And finally, the institutions. So in India, climate change is under the Ministry of Environment, Forests, and Climate Change. Yeah, we need to, we need to close. Okay. 
we're not going to deal with the kind of integrated issues if it's only sitting under the Ministry of Environment. We have to find ways of bringing lots of other uh, power centers into the conversation. So, so it's that pathway that we have to focus on is, is, is the point I'd like to leave you with. I just want to take a minute just to say a few words in defense of alarmism. <laughs> um, because, in part because of the issues that you're raising, we have patterns of behavior that are, um, are very deep and which are um, enforced by very powerful interests, different interests all around the world, but um, everywhere you look, systems that are producing the climate problem are among the most powerful interests in those particular countries. And I think that's one reason why it's important for us to understand the scale and scope and urgency of the crisis, because um, if we hope to address this while essentially continuing to live as we do, and trust those who say, oh, the, the solutions can be marginal and they can be um, imposed without much um, transition, um, I think we're going to end up making not nearly the changes that we need to make. And you know, my own perspective is, you know, I'm somebody who woke up to this issue out of fear. So I think that there is value in using that language and that narrative to talk about climate change. I certainly don't think it's the only way to talk about the issue. I think it's far too big a challenge to talk about in any one way. But when I look at the political and public awakening on climate all around the world, although maybe most concentrated in the West and the US over the last few years, I see an awakening that was produced by a series of hair-raising, um, you know, alarmist um, reports and events. So the 1.5 degree report, which was produced by the UN in October of 2018, um, was much more forthright and, um, to my mind, clear-headed and transparent about just what was necessary. They said the world needed to mobilize at the scale. Um, parts of it mobilized in advance of World War II globally, um, and that we, in order to have a chance of avoiding catastrophic warming. They said that that mobilization needed to start last year, 2019. Um, and the year that followed that, uh, that report was the year in which we saw Greta Thunberg arrive on the, national, on the international scene, Extinction Rebellion rise up. Um, and we're starting to see commitments from um, certain countries around the world. They're just pledges and we can't trust them, but they're much more dramatic and engaged on this issue than has ever been the case before. And I think that a rising sense of immediate alarm is a part of that. Now, we don't want to fall into fatalism and despair, absolutely. Um, but of course, it's for me anyway, it's, it's the flip side of um, the panic button is that when you talk about the scale of what's of the changes that are possible, they are ultimately a reflection of the power that we have over this climate. They, are, they will only come to pass if we make particular choices that take us in that direction. And ultimately, they can tell us that if we take different choices, we will find ourselves in a different world. Um, we need to sort of keep both of these things in mind at once, the scale and urgency of what we're facing and um, the fact that it is not, the story is not yet written. In fact, we are its authors and writing its um, next acts every day. So very quickly, you know, um, I agree. I've been working on climate now for 38 years, you know, from when I first did it. And I've been on many panels of this nature. And a comment comes to mind that I tested yesterday and was very, or the day before yesterday, that was very illustrative. Deborah Roberts said to me once, you know, what will climate responses be like when women are in charge? It was, not, it was a question of different approaches. And I went, I was at a, one of the outreach sessions with the school, with high schoolers uh, yesterday, and I asked the boys what to do. 
All of them talked technology. I asked the girls what to do separately. All of them talked organization, change, stories, that sort of thing. And so there was a tremendously sort of powerful piece. We've seen an awful lot of talk about options, technologies, approaches, and yet it doesn't resonate with at least half of society. So I think that that's a key piece. You know, and, and 38 years of almost all male dialogue We're on all stages. Up here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Jepper Bites. If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Jepper Bites is a Launchora production. Producers of Story Talking with Laksh, The Visionary Podcast, Jazz India Circuit Podcast, Poetry Darbar, and most recently, Play Me Life. All our shows are available on all major podcast apps. Once again, I'm your host, Laksh Datta, and thank you for listening. Thank you.